the work we've been doing on the sutta. Do you all know what crawl is, C-R-W-A-L? You watch CNN or Fox, these news TV channels. You're watching the news, and then there's also like a ticker tape, other news that's constantly going underneath, crawling along. So if you don't know, you won't understand as well what I'm about to say. And so I was watching CNN um, about a week after the war, maybe two weeks, began in Afghanistan. <clears throat> and the interviewer is interviewing uh, an Afghani woman who is talking about how difficult it was living under the Taliban, all the cruelty and so forth. And while it was a very poignant interview with sometimes pauses, long pauses, and, and then there's the crawl going on uh, down here. Arafat says, and uh, you know, President Bush declares that, and, and so I'm watching, and then. Up in the right-hand corner of the TV set uh, is some stuff from uh, the person in command in Kandahar is talking from the battlefield describing the conditions that are going on there. And so uh, I'm watching this interview. In the meantime, Arhat says, Israeli de Israel decides to. And this, the crawl is going on. This interview is going on. Up here is uh, something on the, the war. and. I'm trying to keep up, mainly the focus is on the interview, but now and then there'd be a, a long pause or nothing much was happening, and I find my mind crawling, you know, crawling along, and then suddenly it was interrupted by uh, the upper right-hand corner where I'm, you know, I'm seeing soldiers march, you know, all of this kind of stuff, back to the interview. Then there's time for a commercial break. <laughs> when the commercial break starts, you, if you're caught in some of the crawl, it just cuts it off, <laughs> and then when the and everything is cut off, and then when the commercial starts again, it doesn't pick up where you left off. <laughs> so you have bits and pieces of everything, and I start saying, "This system is de designed by a madman. Who, why, why would anyone want this?" And I realize I understand because their minds are like this, and our minds are like this, and we're perfectly at home. <laughs> Unfortunately, having practiced meditation, it bothers me. I don't like it. And so that's what we're up against. Our mind, too, we have, we're aware, and if it's the breath, or it's this, or it's that, and then thoughts are coming, and they're contradictory and inconsistent, sentences don't finish, and sounds come in, and your knee starts to hurt, and it just, okay. In the midst of all that, we're told to be in the now, to be here and now. Good luck. Okay. Okay. We get, we get to the present tense now. In this one translation, it reads, instead, instead meaning instead of getting caught up in the past and in the future the way by now I think you're clear on, instead with insight, let the yogi see each presently arisen state. That must be clear to you. Each presently arisen state, whether it's a breath or a mood or a sound. Let the yogi know that and be sure of it. Know and be sure means to really clearly see that that presently arisen state is impermanent and empty. Okay, we'll get to that. What impermanent, I think, is clear, especially for some of you who knew what does 
anato or not self or empty me. But here's the part in the text that, uh, the, this is the Buddha speaking. Yogis, what is meant by being swept away by the present? When someone does not study or learn anything about the awakened one, that's the Buddha, or the teachings of love and understanding, that's the teachings of the Buddha, or the community that lives in harmony and awareness, that's us, when that person knows nothing about the noble teachers and, and the, their teachings and does not practice these teachings and thinks, this body is myself, I am this body, these feelings are myself, I am this, these feelings, this perception is myself, I am this perception, this, this mental formation is myself, I am this mental formation. In short, we get lost in the present uh, when we identify with what's happening to us and make self out of it. Uh, in one teaching of the Buddha, to paraphrase it slightly, uh, the Buddha says the essence of the entire teaching is to not attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine, nothing. And so what this is saying is when you get lost in the present, you are, you're attaching to the whole, any aspect of the mind-body process. You're identifying with it, you're taking it as being, this is me, this is my body, this is my, my sadness, this is my anger, whatever it is. Whereas the practice is to see it for what it is, a thought is a thought. An image that comes through the mind, it's just an image. When we're swept away, we get caught in that image we identify with it, we give it tremendous energy, and then it has power over us. And of course, you know this one clearly because we, you've all been caught in it. All, the whole retreat is you're learning how to uh, slowly open your heart, really, so that you can receive more and more of what's happening in this spirit. I think that's what we've been saying for, for the entire week. Um, one who, the Buddha goes on to say, one who is not swept away by the present moment. That would be one who is free of that, that who's uh, totally awake to what's happening without, it, without making self out of it. Uh, another way of putting what the Buddha is saying is that our suffering and the end of suffering really has to do with this selfing process. Um, Joseph Stalin, that great Dharma teacher, he came very close to being enlightened uh, with one of his teachings. One of his assistants came up to him, uh, high-ranking, and said, I'm just, all the people who are helping me, they're really a pain. There's this one who doesn't do it, and that one who's late, and this one who's incompetent, and uh, the other one who I'm not sure of is loyal to, to us. And, and Stalin gave him a simple teaching. He said, hmm, no person, no, no problem. <laughs> the next day, there were no more problems. They were gone. And uh, he was just on the wrong level. He was too literal, <laughs> too literal about it. Okay. Now, the same teaching regard, is in regard to the future and the past as well. Uh, when we get caught, swept up in the future, not using it properly, when you have to plan, uh, we all had a plan to come here, uh, when you know what you're doing, you're planning, uh, back at CIMC, at the end of one, t we have these eight and ten week practice groups. And one person who was really enjoying it and doing well and seemed to like the practice, when we had a go around at the end, he was very, very sad. And I said, well, what's the problem? <clears throat> and 
he said, well, everything has been about being in the present moment, be here now, the here and now, just this, and so forth. And he said, my, my, my job is I'm a city planner. So I said, he thought, I said you know, you got, you're a little off here. You don't have to quit your job. It's just that when you do planning in terms of improving the city of Boston, that's what you do. You know that what you're doing is planning. Oh, okay. Uh, it doesn't necessarily entail identification, making self, and all the rest of it. It's just an application of human intelligence that we have. And it's the same for the, with the past. We spend a lot of time uh, dredging up the past. We've been wounded in the past. We also have had some lovely experiences in the past. And we spend a lot of time in the future. We're afraid of the future, of what the future may bring. We also imagine a future that's going to be wonderful. Uh, if you're young, you may be imagining yourself in a very nice way. What's going to happen when I'm not under the control of my parents, when I have my own job, when I graduate college, when I have my own everything, my own car, and uh, I'm, I've grown up, I don't have just the squeaky voice of a teenager. And, uh, and so the future imaginings may be very, very positive. If you're in your golden years <laughs> and you start imagining the future, it's a little different. <laughs> you start seeing the body as when uh, you can't walk as well, when your vision starts to fade, when you say, what was that? Uh, when you start visiting close friends who are in a nursing home. But my father was, uh, uh, he and his cronies, they, had all, they were all in their 70s and more, and they were, they were talking about when is a person really a senior citizen? And they were, is it 62, is it 65, is it six? And then my father, who was, I mean, I, I'm a, just a poor copy of my father, uh, was a wise guy. Uh, and he, he, he ended the dispute. He said, you're a senior citizen when the old woman that you help across the street turns out to be your wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Some of you are not, la some of you are not laughing. Either you're too young or you're too old. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, and if you look at your mind, you, I think you may find, I found it and countless others have, an enormous amount of time is spent on the future and the past because that's where self, that's one of the main sources of nourishment for selfing. The self it wants to survive. At some level, we all know that the self isn't that solid, that it isn't that enduring. There are a lot of inconsistencies. If you l start listening to your mind, you've all, those of you who are new have just begun. It's like bird watching, only you're listening to your own mind. Go on. <laughs> Uh, you're going to see that doesn't it spend a lot of time reassuring itself, either putting itself down or plans for how it's going to become something better. And if it does this, it'll get that. And, and so if you listen to your, someone, a mind that's secure, that's a state, it doesn't have to keep endlessly talking to itself about how it's going to be okay or worrying about how it isn't okay or what does this one think or that one think or... The yogi on the next cushion seems so happy and smiling, and in the group they talked about what a great retreat it is, and I feel very lonely and bored, and uh, there must be something wrong with me, but, but I, if I keep at this, I'll be okay, because the teachers say that I will. It's just... <laughs> when the teaching said, seeing insightfully, and, with, and then it talks about being unvanquished, being invincible, 
think I mentioned that language the other evening. What that means is seeing very, very clearly in the impermanent and empty nature of whatever it is that has arisen in this moment. If you can begin to look at fear and begin to see that it arises and passes away, and to see the energy of fear, not as an idea, and begin to see that it isn't as substantial as you think it is, underscore think, or as we've made it be substantial by identifying with it. Little by little, the day comes when your relationship to fear starts to change. You've become more familiar with it. You come to know it, just like if you go to a, a, a foreign country and you don't know the language, you don't know the currency. But if you stay there long enough, little by little, you learn where the streets are and, and it's workable. You learn a few key phrases, you buy a little book, and so forth. Um, but the empty part, what do you mean insubstantial? And that's, of course, I'm not going to be able to do it justice. It's something that is very confusing for many people who are on this path. What does it mean? Let the yogi know that and be sure of it. The that is that what it is you're seeing is impermanent and not self. It's lacking in real substance. Let me give you a more crude example, and from that go to more refined. Michael and I spend a lot of time, we both teach at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Uh, for 15 years, I lived on the top floor of the Cambridge Insight Meditation. That was my apartment, my home. Uh, then fortunately for me, the center outgrew the space that we had. We just needed a much larger meditation hall. And so fortunately, I was kicked out. I had to get an apartment uh, nearby, which was, one that was great. But that apartment was my home for 15 years, roughly. And all the walls were torn down, and a very large and a much larger meditation hall was, was constructed. And then almost towards the end, when it was just about done, I hadn't seen, I'd seen a few early stages, and then I didn't see it for quite a while. And then I came up when it was just about done. So what I was looking at, at was, was once my apartment. There was nothing familiar there. I couldn't recognize a thing. Not even a window that I could say, well, I knew that, well, the bedroom was there, my little meditation room was over here, and the study was there. And none of it was there. It was just one very large room. Uh, there was no Buddha in it yet or anything. And it was very disorienting uh, and disconcerting. I, I knew where I was by memory, and yet I, it wasn't here anymore. Now, was I living the, the 15 years, was that a hallucination? No, that was uh, put together by conditions, and one of the main conditions was my mind imbuing it with a reality that this is my apartment, my home. And it was wonderful. It was a place that I could go and retreat to and be alone, be quiet. Uh, you know, we all know that, be it ever so humble, etc. Um, emptiness doesn't mean useless or worthless or that it's a hallucination, or uh, a total imagining. It means that it isn't quite as solid as you thought it was. It, it has a certain kind of insubstantiality. And the Buddha's teaching, and now modern science echoes it, is saying that everything is empty. Even what seems to be the most solid thing, when you come in close, it's empty. It doesn't have that solidity, that enduring continuity. It isn't enduring. So it's a slightly 
different angle on the impermanence teaching. It's not necessarily bad or good news, but it's definitely news. It's what's true if you look closely. Actually, it's something quite marvelous and miraculous that emptiness is manifesting again and again as wonderful as my apartment. This was a seminary, Catholic seminary. This was someone's home with a, this was the ballroom, I think. I'm not sure, but uh, before it was a Catholic seminary. The, there's a, a piece out there that uh, it used to be uh, a swimming pool. We filled it in. It didn't seem proper for a very serious Dharma place. Also, you wouldn't, no one would be in the hall. Uh, so now that's just an outer thing. But our mind is like that, too. So uh, the, we imbue certain comings together, coming together as memories and anticipations and images of ourselves. And we're constantly creating a sense of ourself, which at the time is quite convincing. And that's why the message of not-self is so unconvincing at first. It just seems so really real. And that's why it takes patience and careful observation and a willingness to learn and to uh, see what, what, it, what is a mind actually. And as we begin to see that, we see that uh, the mind isn't such a solid thing. It's something that's it's a process, an ongoing process, uh, that we freeze in a sense. We do it, we kind of fixate, and it gives us a certain pseudo-security. It's not real security. And we use the materials of the past and of the future and, uh, and even of the present to reassure ourselves and to think of ourselves as being, I'm a this. I used to be a that. I'm a this. If I meditate long enough, I'll be even beyond a this and a that. I'll be a, there isn't even a name for it, it's so wonderful. <laughs> Insightful seeing sees into and through all of that. Uh, and in the letting go, you're taken deeper and deeper into what you could call your original nature, your true nature, Buddha nature, the unconditioned, lots so many terms for it. They're just words. You can't really explain it, in my opinion. And you, the names are all inadequate, endless. God realization, whatever you like. But you can know it. It's not a hallucination. So that uh, in Dharma terms, it's coming to our true home. It's coming to our true nature. and. Uh, the only place that life happens is in the here and now. It doesn't happen anywhere else. And more and more as we learn to be intimate with this moment, experience it as it is, just that, and in the choiceless awareness we're doing that. We're learning how to be with exactly this. And it, this keeps changing as you watch. Uh, that has a dynamic all its own. If you're able to allow life to reveal itself. In other words, if you watch uh, with affection and keen interest and allow the process to happen, we, call, we use the name choiceless awareness, there are other names for it, the mind starts to empty itself of its own content. It's just natural. It starts to empty itself. Some of you have seen that. You don't like some of what it empties itself of. But it was there. It didn't drop from the sky. It was in consciousness. Jung called it the collective unconscious. We have, in a sense, the history of mankind, and certainly at least your history. It's all coming out. 
footnote, Jung was wrong. He felt that was the deepest aspect of being human. Anyone who's done meditation for some time, when you penetrate deeply, you know that uh, the materials that are coming up from the unconscious uh, are, in a way, not that different from what's conscious. And you penetrate to something that's even deeper. Uh, and that's, of course, why we practice. Uh, let's have some uh, Q&A. You know, let's talk about particularly daily life, because we're going home now. A few words about daily life. One thing, don't come to view choiceless awareness as some esoteric, rarefied, very special uh, contemplation and meditation that you do in special times and places. Because I think it's wonderful preparation for daily life. Even if you have the same schedule every day, get up at the same time, do a bit of exercise, sit, wash up, have your breakfast, whatever it is you do, the inner life doesn't follow the schedule, does it? It's constantly going through changes. And so we're getting practice in being with, with what is, with just the way it is. And so when you sit down, you have this beautiful laboratory, dramatically simplified, because here you have nothing else to do. You have a little yogi job, and the rest of the time it's just you're here to get to know yourself. That's your job. And when you sit, it's really simplified, sometimes too simplified for our own comfort. And we sit and we see our life unfold and we can get to know ourselves directly, intimately, not as an idea. As you begin to enter action, the world that we, each one of us goes back to, the degree to which you can bring a clear mind to whatever you're doing, so much the better. We've been emphasizing uh, here and now to do each activity in the day with mindfulness. Uh, when you're sitting, just sit. When you walk, just walk. When you're washing pots, just wash pots. In other words, wholeheartedly enter into and receive what you're doing, whatever it is. Nothing is unworthy of your best attention. It's not that the day is made up of a few special things that you're totally interested in and alert to. That's probably how we are already, naturally. And what it's saying is, uh, be alive. So the instructions for here, to pay attention to how you eat, how you dress, be mindful. It's the same instructions when you go home. You don't need any new teaching. It's just that it's much more active. You don't have as much protection. You don't have uh, fellow inquirers with you. A lot of the people around you could care less. Sienna will be alive and well when you get back. And the minds that are fashioned by and gave birth to CNN, that's, what, that's what's going to be around. Co-workers and people who don't practice. And it's not to be resented. It's just uh, this is the environment we live in. Also, it's not like we're free of it yet. So uh, bring the practice home means Bring the spirit of this, whatever, moving from, it's an, our life in a sense is a, a journey, an encounter from now to now to now to now with people, with nature, with things, and it keeps being that. Then we freeze it and make static images and pictures and summaries of what's happened or is going to happen, but it's really a constant unfolding of encounters. And the practice helps us, in a sense, enter into communion with whatever is happening. And it can be the most humble thing. Life comes alive. Some years ago at CIMC, 
uh, we were doing all this stuff, and, and someone who was a professional cook came running in, uh, came to the class and was just so, it couldn't be contained with enthusiasm, just so enthusiastic. What happened? The person said, I finally understand what everyone's, what we're talking about here. He says, today my job was chopping the broccoli, and while I was chopping the broccoli, I was 100% just chop, chopping broccoli. And I was so alive and so fresh, and just chopping the broccoli was so wonderful, so fulfilling. And that's what the teaching is, of course. It doesn't mean that we go to the nearest Chinese restaurant and order broccoli fuyang or whatever. It's not in the broccoli. Or you read all these Zen stories. It's not in a blossom falling to the ground or uh, a monk getting his foot caught in the door and screaming ow and getting enlightened. <laughs> it's, in, it's in here. Wherever you go, there you are again. Now you're chopping broccoli. So that's most important. Don't make a split between sitting, formal practice, and IMS and daily life so that this is what is spiritual. Now we're going back to that dirty, noisy, loud, ugly, meat-eating world out there. <laughs> Raucous, beer-drinking, cursing, hateful world out there. And then I can't wait for my next retreat. In the meantime, months go by where we're hardly where we are. So that attitude, when it's time to sit, really sit. You, and I think it's very important to establish a sitting practice, especially for those of you who are new, those who've been practicing for a while, you know that. Protect it. You need to protect it because it's eaten away very, very easily. There's so much going on in daily life for most of us, but before you know it, you're sitting once a week, not at all. You have to really protect it uh, within reason. You know your schedule, you know your capacity, uh, go a little bit beyond it. If you feel on your own, you may not be able to sit as long. You may find a half an hour is just perfect. Okay, go to 35 minutes. Challenge yourself a little bit, but don't overdo it. If it's 20 minutes, make it 25 minutes. So the sitting practice is special. And then again, it isn't at all. Because before IMS and Buddha and Vipassana and everything that's been said here, there's life. Life is only found in the present moment and all of this training and practice and, uh, in a sense, form of re-education, of seeing how you can unlearn what's destructive and uh, make room for uh, something that's beneficial in your life, um, we can all do it, but you have to do it with the materials of your life. And I'll leave you with this attitude. There's life, of course, always. Whether you come to IMS, wherever you are, there it is. It's just this. It's going to keep being that way. If you can view that the world exists in order to set me free, it's a great help. That's a yogi's dream. <laughs> in other words, whatever you live out your life with your partners, plant flowers, go to a movie, whatever that is, it's not that you have to, anything changes there. It's just whatever is happening by fully being with it, uh, you begin to liberate yourself. And I'll just leave you with this thought. That's about three things I've said I would just leave you with. <laughs> Become really sensitive to your reactions to things. Particularly in daily life, we're reacting all, even here, we're reacting all the time. Often we get 
lost in that which produced the reaction, the person, the weather, whatever it is. Traffic jam. More and more, I think you may discover that the reaction is at least as important, probably more so, than what's produced the reaction. And as you more and more remember to be in touch with yourself, your reaction, the reaction starts to weaken and fall away. The, the actions that come out of that mind are mechanical. They come from all from the past, from your accumulations. You were brought up this, that, and the other way, and then you've had these experiences. I don't like this, I like that. And it comes out. It's just like uh, you put money in for root beer, you get root beer. You put it in for, what are, what are people, Coca-Cola, you get Coca-Cola. Mechanical, we're machine-like. If you begin to see the reactivity as the conditioning, your personal conditioning, it starts to weaken and fall away, and then you have the opportunity for a response. The job of clear mind, the work of clear mind, which is what we're, that's our project, is seeing things as they are. When you see things as they are, it's so much easier to know what to do, what to say, and so forth. Any questions as we head for, sure. doesn't go away. It doesn't, not only does it, it doesn't go away, but and, you know what, I, I look at it and I think, I hate this, I want it to go away. Should, can you see that? Yeah. No, can you look at that? Look at hating the... Look, in other words, this is what I hear is your question. How do you, I hear it as, how do you, how do you get a mind that's non-judgmental? Sounds nice, but my mind's very judgmental. You're not, not, are you not saying that? How do I, I think that might be what I'm saying. No, let's be sure. I, yeah. <laughs> how do I how do I sit with this energy and not not come at it from like this is uh, this is bad I shouldn't have this energy. What in a, you shouldn't be practicing a certain way, or you should. I shouldn't be so attached. Oh, oh, okay. Yes, I, I have. Yeah, I do. I think so. Um. We hear letting go, letting go, letting go a lot. And so, of course, everyone, the star of the show is letting go. Uh, forget about letting go for the moment. To no attachment. Do you see what I'm getting? The real letting go comes out of letting be. It's like a synonym for it. So that when you're like, er, 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 feel how much, feel the, feel the tight your fist is. And and also feel what that's like. It's not very pleasant, is it? See, the real letting go has, uh, when it begins to happen in a profound way, is not because the Buddha said uh, attachment leads to suffering, and then Michael reinforces it, and I do, and you read books, and they all do. And all. It comes out of you, the deepest way in which that truth becomes your truth, is you begin to see in here, in your bones, that holding on doesn't work. It's futile. The holding on uh, is, it feels like this. Uh, your, the veins are popping out of your neck, the shoulders are up like this, 
the heart. You go for checkups, and they say, hey, you got a lot of high blood pressure, you're so young, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that you learn, like, it, it, there's a, a psych the Buddhist psychology is very simple, almost simple-minded. It's sim a lot of it is similar to Pavlov, you know, with his rats. Okay. Uh, you stick your hand in, in fire, and you get burned. Most of us learn that one. Maybe we do it a second time. Right? And usually, unless there's something really wrong, you don't do it a third time. Okay. Okay. Now, you can then get attached to fire is no good, but you can learn how to use fire to heat yourself, to cook with, without, you know that this is something you don't touch. And maybe your mommy told you not to do it, but then when you touch it, you do it, and it burns, then you really know it. And then it's your truth. And letting go is irrelevant. I mean, you don't even want it anymore. Now, a lot of things in life are decked out, camouflaged. They're saying, I am incredibly wonderful. In the meantime, they're fire, and we're getting burned by it. And that's what is the power of self-deception, delusion, craving. Uh, egos, the ego is so uh, vulnerable. You see what I'm getting at? And so investigate what it, what it means to, the, to the resistance, the contraction, all of that. And out of that, it's like fire. You're going to learn... To, it will just start, it's a natural law. It will start to loosen up and ease up, and then the letting, it will fall like a, like a fruit from a tree. Uh, my ethnic group is we point all the time, so I'm... <laughs> Do you see what I'm getting at? Good, please. Slow? Slow. F L O W. Don't know. It's by a psychologist from the University of Chicago who you may know. The Heidi Chicksen the Heidi is his name. Anyway, he they have made a study of happiness. How what Is this gonna be about you? This is about me. Okay. Because <laughs> this is just a half hour show. <laughs> yeah. Basically what he was saying is yeah. That's right. And, and find the kind of grooves, like if you're a runner, it's torturous for the first few minutes, and then you work into the groove and you find joy. And, and that that's true with anything that you can do. I think that's so, yeah. And um, I, here's, where, here's my question, it might be skewed, but I, I guess I'm fortunate to have some work that allows me to find that kind of flow. Not all the time, but often enough to be gratifying. And I find myself going for hours and hours, applying myself to whatever it is. And then I look up and I wonder, where was I? Uh, and in the meantime, I started doing the practice. You know, and I set my beeper watch so it goes off every hour, so I take possession Maybe the first way was closer to being the practice. Well, well that's what, I, that's, that's what I want, my, I'm asking. Because I, I, in the hour or two that I'm in the flow, uh, I'm not mindful in the same way that I'm mindful when I'm sitting here on a chair. And it's the way that I'm mindful, I uh, have been mindful in the past few days. Okay. And I find a confusion in that for me. I understand. It's a, it's a really important question for all of us. Um, what does it mean to observe anything? 
pure observation. We're learning the art of pure observation. Only now, the human race, we're very good at observing the outer world. We have, science and technology are magnificent. It's come from observation. Okay. Um, at first, our observation is not pure. It's very colored by our psyche, likes and dislikes. And, and then if you like something, like your work, then you have a much better chance of flowing with it. But then it's time to do the dishes, or your wife says, take out the garbage, and there's resistance, and a very long face, and all that, because that's not worthwhile. It's not, uh, there's no conviction that that's of any use. In the meantime, it's a piece of your life. Okay. With practice, the psychological part starts to fall away wither away. Less and less is your biography showing through the seeing. And it gets clearer. You know, you're closer to what your, your question had in it of seeing with non-judgmental, unbiased, just not being for or against what you're observing. Okay. But there's still something off in it because there's the self-consciousness of the, the observer. And, and, you know, you fell back into that and then you could, now I'm going to really practice. That's the ego camouflaged as a yogi. You know, it's now it's saying, uh, I'm practicing mindfulness. Aren't I wonderful? And it's the same ego. It's brilliant. You don't want it to be, you know, you don't get off on sex or million, being a millionaire. Or, uh, the Dharma is my real love now. The ego says, fine, I'm shameless. I don't care. <laughs> Whatever you want, I'm with you. Now I'm going to be the best at that. Okay, so... When you are flowing with the dishes, as actually uh, a great Japanese Zen master named Dogen talks about forgetting the self as you become, uh, you kind of fully enter into the activity. But it's not mindless, it's just you're fully alive. Now, when the self-consciousness phase starts to weaken, and it does with practice, it starts to wither away too. Then there's really clear seeing. There's no separation, there's no observer. The seeing is happening. You may have had glimpses of it. I, I think some of you, I know some of you have. But you may not know that this is what it was. It's sort of like suddenly awareness is effortless. The mind is so peaceful and calm and clear. And, you know, the breath just, everything is just a piece of cake. And it doesn't last too long. Then it's gone. So uh, I think the flow idea is good. But then how to make cutting broccoli fl the flow? Now, find out where there's no flow. For example, uh, my, my mother made a, my sister and I, we had to do the dishes every night. We would alternate. I'd do it one night. I hated doing the dishes for years. Just hated it. So I took that on. Can I learn how to, because the childhood resistance, it was following me around in, you know, until a few years ago, I mean, a couple of days ago. <laughs> uh, and so I took that on as a particular practice. Another person might not need it. They might just very easily enjoy the feel of the warm water and you know, the satisfaction of, and other people are just, they go on numb, you know, they just, the dishes are immaculate, but they weren't there. They're planning out the movie they're going to and what they're going to tell their husband or wife. And, you know. But I took it on as a practice because I was so weak there. And so you see what I'm getting at. And I actually do enjoy doing the dishes now. I really do. Uh, there's something, but it's not in the dishes, just as it wasn't in the broccoli. Is that I'm honoring the fact that, you know, maybe it takes 20 minutes or half an hour. That's a real 20 minutes of my life. I'm respecting life is what I'm doing. And it's just the dishes are the medium that I'm using. And it keeps being like that throughout the day. And that's why these ordinary and simple things of life can come alive. It's you who have come alive. 
the world of things and nature, it's just the way it is, it's not going to change. You change, and then it's a very, very different world. Is that close to what you were getting at? Missed again. <laughs> okay, well, can't win them all. Yeah. <laughs> That's not real letting go. Then you're. Oh, oh. Okay, period. suffering is suffering. Now, if you're then attached to it by trying to push it away, or some people get delight. There's extreme states of masochism, you know, where people love to suffer. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not complicated. No, aversion is different. If you're a masochist, I'm making this up, I don't know where, let's say you're doing it because it, it, the reason you're, you're not stopping is because it isn't fire to you, there's some kind of, but when you look at it, how would a masochist get free, there's probably a huge price they're paying for being that way in terms of other aspects of life. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's a great way to live. <laughs> I rather doubt it because we heard it. Aversion is, is an attitude towards it. Fire is like an, it's, it's a, a form of pain. And you can, you, have the, you can learn from your pain or not. Some people, now you can learn from fire. That's an easy one. Many people don't learn how, we're here to learn how to live. The Buddha, in my words, is saying, human race, you don't know how to live. You need to learn how to live. You really don't. Even those of you who are called adults, you don't know what you're doing. And you're bringing up children without even knowing what you're doing. And then you feels, you know, in my generation, if you put on an Adam's hat, that meant you were an adult. I, and women, I go for a man who wears an Adam's hat. Uh, people are no more mature. They just an immature person wearing an Adam's hat. Okay. What I'm talking about is that you learn from life that what is harmful for you and for others and... There are two ways. One is this immediate, direct experience of being burned by the fire. And finally, you get it. Okay. <clears throat> There's another kind of learning, and it varies with what the activity is. Sometimes through reflective insight, not direct insight, direct, clear, direct seeing. The fire would be that. Through reflective insight, and usually those aren't so tightly held. You know, you put two and two together and realize by intelligent reflection, using reason and, oh, look, I spend so much time going into the future, and that's because I really don't want to face what's happening to me right now. And you hear the talks, and then you decide it's so obviously true, and something weakens and it starts to fall away, and then you're better able to look at the present. So sometimes things happen that simply. But you are in talking about, you were talking about something that wasn't, you know, it was a fruit that didn't want to fall off the tree. Okay, aversion is, is something else. That's, that's an attachment. Again, that's another attachment. Then it's, you know, it's this kind of thing. Pain is just pain, and then it can be followed by whatever. Holding on or pushing away. Do you see? Good. Anything from this side of the room? Please. Good question.
Yes. That's a very good question. Uh, Dharma practice makes you more sensitive in the sense of vulnerable. It also makes you stronger. Now, sounds like a contradiction. Uh, you become more sensitive because as you become more intimate with your own experience, you can really feel your suffering. You know, the instructions were kind of rubbing your face in it. Come back to it, come back to it. But not in a blind way, you know, an unskilled way. We're, we're trying to say we, there are ways to relate to what's, what's happening to you. You do become more sensitive because uh, as the mind becomes more clear, it's starting, it's like your glasses were all fogged up and you didn't know it. You're starting to see. For example, one uh, yogi who attained enlightenment was asked, well, what is this enlightenment that everyone's talking about? He said, well, the sky is blue. What did you learn from your enlightenment? He said, I learned that the sky is blue and the grass is green. What? We all know, already know that. Not really. So you, you do become more sensitive. And you become more sensitive not only to your own pain, but to others' pain. That can help you relate to people in a much more kind way, in natural compassion and kindness, because you can feel that we're really all just one person. It's all the same. But you, in a sense, you're more vulnerable. So where does the strong part come in? When you start feeling the vulnerability of your own suffering, let's say, you realize just how much fear you have, how frightened you are of being afraid, then awareness starts to work with that reaction, with that fear, so that that starts to get weaker, so that it's possible to, be, to feel the sorrow of the world even more than the average person. But not to be burned up, what are the, not burned up, burned out, uh, stressed out, and all the rest of it. Um, the world is not going to change at all. So it's we who have to change. And there's an inner strength that comes from practice that enables you to be sensitive, but to not be overrun by your sensitive sensitivity to what you're experiencing about you and about the world. That may seem rather abstract. That probably does. And, and it has to be, because you have to find it out for yourself. And you have to work with your own vulnerabilities, your own sensitivity, seeing you don't want to feel that, you don't want to be sensitive. And in the seeing of that, you learn that, well, it wasn't so bad. I can't. In a sense, you learn your way into being sensitive and stable, uh, so that you can... Many therapists come to our center who are burnt out. And the practice helps them remain sensitive, but not being so burnt out. A lot of social workers who are really in the front lines with, with some awful conditions that are going on in the world. It is. But, and paying attention to your reactions, that's very, very, that's crucial. So start, uh, when you go home, it's no different than here. Start being sensitive to your reactions to whatever. Please. Well, the, the understanding is, it's not intellectual understanding. But those are two very different. Uh, our practice is not stewing, is it? Is our practice stewing in your own juices? No, no, not guess is not good enough. If you're not sure, let's try to clarify it.
Yes. You, you mentioned the, the people that I referred to, let's say survivors of extreme situations. And I've worked with a fair number now, and most are unable to. But they were also not meditators. A few were meditators and just were not willing to take the practice deeply enough. Um, if you don't have the resource of what the Buddha is talking about here, that ability to, what, when it arises, let's say a painful memory from the past arises, that is a memory. Is that clear? It's a, that event is over. It could be over 40 years ago. It's a memory. When it comes up, and if you identify with it, not observe it, observe it without bias, but identify with it, then it, it's as if you're going through it again. It's like reliving a bad movie. The movie's over. You're not even in the theater. It's 40 years ago. And yet, and the body then responds, emotions come in. Before you know it, you have a very powerful drama as everything is reacting to everything else. But that is not, that's not a life of awareness. That's what I would call stewing. There's one person, a very close friend, has become a close friend, and uh, keeps asking in a thick Russian accent, what is this Buddhism you keep talking about? <laughs> and every time I try to explain it and apply it to her situation, she's a survivor from the gulags, lost. I mentioned her. Uh, she gets on her roller skates and gets out of there as fast as she, she doesn't want to look at her stuff. Then, and she's just wearing herself down. She looks 20 years older than she is. Um, so practice is a way not of stewing, but of opening up to, of receiving, but not in a helpless way. Now, what is it that uh, protects you? It's your awareness that protects you. But Many of you are really new. Your awareness is just baby awareness. For example, we give the instructions, be mindful of everything you're doing, right? Okay, you've heard it many, many times. There are people who've been practicing for 30 years, and let's say we have a retreat, and we give the same instructions. The mindfulness for them, and for someone who just walked first retreat, never sat before, some of you are really new. You're pre-new, sandbox. <laughs> it's not a criticism, it's just that, okay, the art of observation is, in other words, you, insight meditation. The key to liberation is through, you don't get free by trying to break free of your chains, whatever your chains are. It's through clear seeing, it's through seeing into deeply. It's the seeing that frees you. That's not stewing, but in order to do that, you have to have, the mind has to be fit. Well, I can't find it. Uh, it has to be fit to be unwavering, you know, to be able to look at whatever it is you, you know what you're talking about, to look at it in a, an affectionate but non-judgmental way and let it tell its story, let it flower, that particular agony of a certain memory. You can heal the past in the present. To contrast that very briefly, there's one person who had also very nightmarish experiences in the Holocaust. I told you about this person. Parents carted away at 11, never saw them again. Okay. But that person did have a practice, and even with a practice, so much ambivalence at being able to look at that. It felt as if it was sacrilegious to just observe the memory of her parents. But the day came when she saw that that was not her parents. That was just 
something in the archives, an old film that just comes back again and again. And then we get, now that's good when you go to the movie, you identify with the film and you become one with the actors and actors and you start sobbing and you know, you just feel, oh, okay. nothing's happening. If you put, if you go to the movie and practice with Pasna, you'll be finished, there'll be no more movies. <laughs> In fact, this is the last thing that I, we need time for a go around. Um, this is a true story. Everything else I've been saying has been baloney. Uh, Michael and I had a, a very uh, eccentric Indian teacher named Munindraji. He was very, very good. We all learned a lot from him. Uh, he was one of the first teachers for all of us. And I had the honor of taking him to his first movie. He had never been to a movie. We went to a movie in Cambridge, and um, we came out, and he said, well, why do people make such a fuss about this? He said, you know, he didn't have a good time at all. I said, well, what was happening, Menindra? He said, I was just sitting, I knew I was mindful of sitting in a chair, and light was going on the screen, and it was this, this and people were sitting around, and images were flashing, and just going like that. Uh, uh, I didn't get any satisfaction from it. What do you all see in this, mo in, you know, in this movie? So I tried to explain to him, you know, you don't, uh, you know. A few months later, we went to a movie again. It was a war film. It was uh, Bridge Over, I don't know, something, one of those, a World War II war film. And by then, he had been much more Americanized than, you know, everything. Uh, we came out of it, and he was very quiet, and uh, usually he's very bubbly and cheerful and funny, and he was just really quiet and kind of... I said, Benindraji, what's happening? He went, oh, those poor people. <laughs> Killing one another, and so much death, so much unnecessary. I said, Menindraji, now you understand what a movie is, but you were not a Vipassana yogi at that moment. Okay. Um, We've all worked hard together. It's been like this temporary sangha. I do have one last thought. <laughs> okay, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's important and it's worth being even thought of as an egomaniac to say it. Uh, it's the 9-11 phenomena. Bring, I don't know what is in store for all of us, but the simple teaching of being in the present moment is the best help you could have. Uh, not to get lost in the past where people start saying, you know, there, there was a period where America will never be the same, America, the world is a different, that may be true, it's not totally true, but there's some truth in it, and then people going back to the good old days, and we can just go to a mall and go up into high buildings and go to an airport casually and bemoaning that. Um, the world we're living in, this is really happening. That building really was destroyed with those people. This is all really and truly going on. It's not just a TV event. It's a harsh reality. And so are other things harsh, not our realities. Birds are still chirping. They're still, uh, mothers are still loving their children. Everything is still, it's all what's going on. The practice is always to staying in the present moment. And maybe now we're much more sensitive to how little control we have. We never had the control, it was a delusion but we needed something like this really woke us up, at least for a while. Uh, 
don't get off in too much in the future. Sometimes intelligent futuristic thinking is useful to stock up for, with food or water. Sometimes that does make sense. But people are creating scenarios where it's the apocalypticians, people all over. The, the end of the world is sort of uh, everything is over, bye-bye, uh, maybe. But keep it simple. Stick to the present moment. Now, uh, some years ago, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, told a bunch of us how when the boat people uh, left Vietnam, they were trying to get to other places. Many of them, as you know, were lost at sea. And he said they were rickety little boats. And the boats that survived had a better chance of surviving if there was at least one person <clears throat> who could remain calm, who could, rem who could remain mindful, who could remain centered, who was not hysterical when they would get to these huge waves. If there was no one on the ship like that, the, the likelihood of, it getting this, of getting lost at sea was much, much greater. Okay. You're that one person. Whether you know it or not, you didn't realize this. This has been special forces training for you. But it's inner special forces, inner SEALs, inner Marines, inner whatever you like, Rangers. Uh, because you're all in some world. And you have resources that often people don't have. And if you can remember to come back to the moment and stay balanced with whatever awaits us, and none of us know, then you can, you can be beneficial for the people in your life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.